as we continue to learn new details about the Highland Park parade shooting, we want to acknowledge that it was another tough weekend for gun violence in Chicago. At least 68 people were shot and eight people were killed over the 4th of July weekend across the city. That includes five people who were wounded in a mass shooting on Monday in Parkway Gardens, an apartment complex in West Woodlawn on the city's south side. Now, uh, several of them were treated at the University of Chicago Medicine's Adult Trauma Center. In a few minutes, we will talk to someone from the trauma center to find out more about their research and and, uh, what they're looking into. But first, why don't we check in with Tenny Gross, who is executive director of the Institute for Nonviolence Chicago, and Kim Smith, who's program director at the University of Chicago Crime Lab. Hi, Kim. Welcome to Reset. Hi. Good afternoon. So uh, I, w- I want to talk to you about uh, this gun violence problem. We have talked about how communities, you know, might be healing from these traumatic events when they when they happen. We want to take it a step back and talk about how we prevent this kind of thing from happening in the first place. Can you talk a little bit about the types of violence we saw over the past weekend? Absolutely. Um, I think there, you know, people, when we talk about or when we think about mass shootings, uh, there's actually not really a consensus definition of of mass shootings. Um, I believe a lot of folks think about tragic incidents that took place in Highland Park and Buffalo, Evaldi, where there are 10 and 20 victims, incidents that involve assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. As researchers, we typically define a mass shooting as an incident where four or more people are shot. And using that definition, the vast majority of mass shootings in America are actually the result of of street or community violence. So violence that I think people um, uh, are unfortunately all too familiar with in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And we've actually, we've done some analysis uh, using that definition. And in the past 12 months, there have been 51 mass shooting victim, uh, incidents in Chicago where 241 wow. people were shot. My goodness. Uh, Tenny Gross is with us now. Uh, Tenny, your reaction to not just the, the stat that Kim just gave us, but to the violence that we just most recently saw in Highland Park and, of course, all across Chicago over the uh, the long weekend. Yes, I mean, it, it hit my team personally. We had staff who got injured. We had participants who got injured, as well as our partners around the city. So it, it brings it very close to home. We are at the hospitals where people are recovering and under operations and it is we got to keep we keep pushing to try and be optimistic but it's a definitely difficult picture how do last weekend's events play into that bigger picture of gun violence in chicago tenny you know it's we're not accountants right so it's painful it's painful to people have been under this pain for a very long time i think cautiously we we have been participating in building a civilian architecture in Chicago in the last few years. COVID was a big setback and everything, violence going up around the country, including rural areas, has affected Chicago as well. And I'm cautiously optimistic that in this year we're going to get back on track. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of people risking their lives on the weekends, at night, young people in the neighborhoods, uh, both as participants as well as staff that are trained 
and uh, trying to keep these neighborhoods down. So the successes drown in the numbers, you know, and uh, and I'm not going to say that, oh, right, this year we had better numbers because uh, we are, it's a struggle. It's going on there, but we know also the change for the better in cities that we worked in mm-hmm. takes at least a decade. And I think Chicago, and again, that's as a practitioner as opposed to just the general public which sees all the bad news, as a practitioner, I see a civilian architecture that is serious. I see a lot of dedicated, thoughtful people, a lot of partnerships. We have now victim services in Chicago spread around uh, 28 neighborhoods. So those are all p- positive changes that are happening. We also see uh, during the pandemic that purchases of guns, legal and illegal, have gone way, way up. And yeah. that makes our life a lot more difficult. That is true. Kim, who is most affected by gun violence in Chicago? And how do you how do those demographics compare to the region overall? So when we look at who uh, the victims of, of gun violence are in Chicago, unfortunately, the patterns and trends that we've seen in the past two years are those that we've seen over the past 20 years. Uh, black men in Chicago make up the majority of, of victims of gun violence. Uh, black men in Chicago are nearly six times more likely to die by homicide than the general population and 62 times more likely to die by homicide than white men. Um, we also know that the safety gap has increased both by race and by geography because Chicago is so segregated. So the homicide rate in the kind of quote unquote safest neighborhoods um, is uh, just so uh, the gap between the four most violent police districts and the four least safe, um, uh, uh, four most safe police districts has doubled since the 90s. So we've seen uh, kind of a continuation of the racial disparities and the burden of both gun violence and the criminal justice system and the difference in the experience that you you have as a a Chicago and just varies tremendously uh, depending on the color of your skin. What's the impact of, of this gun violence on the communities and the kids in those communities? Well, I I think that's such an important question. Um, We know exposure to gun violence severely impacts children's ability to learn, uh, which just makes it all the more difficult for for young people and families to thrive. There's been some work uh, done by a sociologist at Princeton University, Pat Sharkey, which has shown that exposure to homicides resulted in reduced test performance um, and passing rates for Black students. He finds that children who take assessments in the, the days following a homicide in their neighborhood looked as if they'd missed two years of school. So just the, the sheer impact that even just exposure to gun violence can have um, on, on young people is, is incredibly heartbreaking and, and speaks to the truly multifaceted, multi-pronged approach that, that we need to take uh, to ensure that all communities in Chicago have access to opportunity and, um, and can heal in the wake of, of such tragic violence. Yeah. Tenny, what are some factors driving gun violence? in our area, from what you've seen? The number one by far is guns. Uh, I was just visiting Just the availability of them. I mean, I just visited England. They're just not something you just relax, just as a human being, right? It's something, again, it's in rural. It's not just in Chicago. Chicago has... As many cities, uh, the experience of African-Americans in this society is very specific with racism is very long and, and oppression. And so violence has been a survival of poverty and as well as 
sort of street justice when you don't trust the government. So those are complex issues, but it's not like we cannot see why they happen. And in that, it's not just to say bad news. In that, we also can see what the solutions are. The solutions are support neighborhoods that have been traumatized for a long time, specifically in, in much more efforts than we usually do in our society. And I think we're in the right direction in Chicago, but it needs to be a lot more. We have friends nationally, Live Free and others, that have been advocating now in the White House. We have our own Eddie Bocanegra from Chicago is advising now the Justice Department. So finally, people are starting to listen. The solution is not just going to be prisons and policing, but mm-hmm. we've got to start supporting those neighborhoods. We've got to open schools, after school. That trauma, is it's not hard for us to imagine how people are now feeling in the Ukraine. Well, imagine if you have 40 years of Chicago, 60 years in Chicago, where we lost 40,000 people to homicides and a few hundred thousand being shot. I mean, that is that dwarfs almost what's happening in the Ukraine now. And that's these are neighbors here. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you are just tuning in, we're discussing how the Fourth of July mass shootings in suburban Highland Park and Chicago play into the larger issue of gun violence in our area and possible solutions, too. With us are Tenny Gross from the Institute for Nonviolence Chicago and Kim Smith of the University of Chicago Crime Lab. Sticking with you for another moment, Tenny, talk more about that support work that you're doing and, and what exactly it means to practice nonviolence. You know, it's it's being very proximate, as actually a West Coast writer uses it from Homeboy Industry, being close to people, uh, um, interacting with our young people. They often are caught in conflicts, and sometimes they'll carry because they're afraid, because so many people around them have weapons and violence. Violence kind of escalates, so you have to eventually, if you are not using it, you're at real risk to yourself. So... How do we help young people who often reach out? Just last week, a group who were blamed for a shooting reached out to an outreach worker to try and mediate that situation and set the record uh, clear. So it's important to have those mediating groups out there, and they are, that often talk to young people, find an honorable way out Mm -hmm. of a conflict. Social media escalates that, and we now have people like uh, Bo Deal, who enlists artists to start putting positive messages in, in our music and in our culture. So there's different efforts to live nonviolently. It's almost insane in an environment that has so much yeah. violence in it. And yet most of the time, and that's a, that's a, actually is a new book by Chris Blattman. He makes that case. Most of the time people caught in violence, cycle of violence, actually resolve their issues. They want to avoid the cost of violence. Uh, and that's what we want to get back to. Mm-hmm. The rational side, uh, slow down your process like the CBT that Ready Chicago is deploying, uh, where you do cognitive behavioral therapy and you slow down your brain to think before you act. But impulse of respect and defending yourself is something that a lot of us are affected by, especially when we are traumatized. And dialing that back takes work, but it is successful. We just need a lot more of it. Kim, can you talk about restorative justice? Because that's a phrase that's been coming up a lot. What does it mean and what does it actually look like on a practical level? 
Well, I think restorative justice is uh, the, you know, the idea is you're taking a different approach to uh, addressing gun violence. And I think that's important because the status quo approach to gun violence imposes significant costs. The neighborhoods that are most affected by gun violence are also the same neighborhoods that have borne the burden of our, our main response to it historically, which is aggressive policing and long prison sentences. So in thinking about solutions, we need to identify uh, programs and policies that will both reduce gun violence without exacerbating the harms of the criminal legal system. And that is why programs like the ones that Tenney uh, mentioned, you know, CP4P, Chicago Cred, Ready, um, uh, you know, in our case, we are evaluating Ready and we've found uh, not quite a the usual social science threshold of statistical significance, um, but uh, we, uh, with about 85% confidence, we can see that Ready does generate uh, tremendous social good for every dollar that's invested. So identifying similar programs, evaluating those programs, and making sure that they are resourced um, in a way that can actually materially improve outcomes without reducing the harms of the criminal justice system, I think is the approach that we need to be taking as a society. You know, gun control, that's, of course, also on our minds. Tenney's talked a lot about that as well. What moves are you looking for from elected officials and lawmakers, Kim? So, you know, addressing this crisis is going to require a multi-pronged approach. Uh, we need to address root causes, segregation, racism, systemic disinvestment. I do think we also need to make sure that the criminal justice system is more effective and fair. And then we also need to think about the role of, of access to guns and information about access to guns. Uh, last week, the Illinois Attorney General unveiled a new initiative called Crime Gun Connect that is trying to make data from the ATF much more accessible and usable um, by law enforcement agencies in, in the state of Illinois. So I think efforts that increase transparency around guns and, and data about uh, who and, and how folks are, are accessing guns are incredibly important. And um, it, it's encouraging that, you know, at least in, in the state of Illinois, we've started to take some of those steps. We need, obviously, that information to translate to um, uh, policy and programmatic change. But yeah. Uh, from our standpoint, you know, much more transparency and data about what is happening with respect to gun violence is, mm-hmm. is a really important critical step. Before I let you both go, what are you going to be watching for in the ongoing response to gun violence after this past weekend? You first, Kim. Uh, I, I really do think it's important for us to uh, keep in mind the, the ways in which community violence in Chicago, um, while is not you know, something that is is going to be on the front page of of the New York Times every weekend. Um, the the as Tenny was saying, just the tremendous harm that comes from uh, community violence in Chicago, mm-hmm. um, while also obviously um, holding in our hearts the the uh, victims and and the the tragic impact of of what's happened in Highland um, Highland Park and in in cities, unfortunately, around the country very recently. Um, so uh, understanding that these are related challenges, but that they also require unique solutions, um, and and making sure that as we think about how to not exacerbate the challenge, we are um, kind of holding both of these these truths at the same time. Your brief thoughts, Tenny. So to me, I agree with what Kim says, and uh, I think we need to do two things. We need to keep investing in the communities and those peacemakers within the communities. At the end of the day, that's what they want. That's how they want to save their young people. Mm -hmm. We need to be allies and support that. Uh, And um, 
not just fall back to incarceration solutions and we need to keep the funding coming to yeah. mental health etc and there's also going to be inevitable we're going to have to build bridges with a culture that celebrate guns and we're going to have to change that uh it's going to get worse those guns they're not like a car they stay viable for decades and there's more and more of them and it's affecting everyone no one is safe so we need to build bridges again mm -hmm. new york times today is a story there's no middle class neighborhoods less of them there's the very rich and the very poor wow and it sort of happened to our politics and our society and we got to rebuild the middle. Yeah. Tony Gross is the executive director of the Institute for Nonviolence Chicago, and Kim Smith is the program director at the University of Chicago Crime Lab. Thank you both. All right, let's run through the numbers again. At least 68 people were shot. Eight people were killed over the 4th of July weekend across the city. That includes five people who were wounded in a mass shooting on Monday in Parkway Gardens, which is an apartment complex in West Woodlawn on the city's south side. As I mentioned earlier, several of them were treated at the University of Chicago Medicine's Adult Trauma Center. So with us now to discuss the uh, healthcare response to gun violence and how communities can heal from traumatic mass shootings is Franklin Cozy Gay. He's the director of the Violence Recovery Program at the center. Welcome to Reset, Franklin. Thank you for having me. So as you've been listening along, you know it's been a difficult week here for, for us in the Chicago region. You're experiencing it as well. Uh, that mass shooting in, in Parkway Gardens, it happened on the same day as the Highland Park parade shooting. What's on your mind right now? Well, you know, first of all, just thank you for this opportunity. And um, what's on my mind is the importance of highlighting both. Um, of course, the the um, incidents that happen at Parkway Gardens are consistent to what has been happening across communities like West Woodlawn, as well as other communities, approximately about 15 to 18 other communities in Chicago, really over the past 50 years. And so it's very important to uplift that as we're recognizing the harm that uh, gun violence is causing to our nation. What kind of patients do you work with in the violence recovery program? Yeah, you know, again, you know, I want to uh, certainly um, raise my cap up to the community activism and university leadership that actually led to um, a level one uh, trauma center opening in May um, 2018. And so our violence recovery program specifically is focusing on that window of opportunity that focuses on the individuals that have been impacted um, by violence and their families understanding that this window of opportunity that we have considered the golden hour where we where patients who are impacted by um, violent traumatic experiences are willing to accept interventions that address factors that might place them at continued risk um, for violent re-injury. And so we're primarily just looking at the overall numbers since we've opened, we've mm -hmm. engaged around 6,300 patients um, through early June. Um, of those patients, 70% of them have been um, gunshot wounds, and 81% of them are males. You know, 85% uh, of them are African American, and 86% of it's community violence. And one thing that I want to highlight again is that 60% of them are adults between 20 and 40 years of age. Mm -hmm. It's my understanding, too, Franklin, that, that once someone has been the victim of a violent crime, they're more likely to be injured again. Why is exactly. that? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, research has shown that, you know, you're 40 percent uh, more likely once you've been violently injured um, to be re-injured. And so 
two major goals that we have from our program is to actually interrupt that re-injury and also um, support an ecosystem towards a comprehensive recovery. And, you know, core to that are some of the things that brought that were brought up by Kim and Tenny, which really around um, housing and where and the structural disparities that exist that are primarily related to uh, decades and decades of disinvestment that are happening at the economic level, that, that are happening at the housing level, and also socially. And so essentially when you're discharging uh, a survivor of violence, you're discharging them right back into the same community. And so, um, you know, some of the impact of that is connected to protection and hypervigilance. And, um, and so related to that, you have individuals that are going to be more likely to be re-entered. Several of the people wounded in the, the Parkway Gardens shooting, they were brought to the University of Chicago Trauma Center. What role has the trauma center played in responding to gun violence on the South Side overall? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And so what we are violence recovery specialists, we're within a larger model that focuses on trauma, trauma doctors as well as nurses, um, child life specialists, spiritual care, um, healing hurt people. Um, and what we're, our violence recovery specialists are, we have a team of about 16 violence recovery specialists that are 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. They are there to receive um, patients when they arrive. And initially what they're aiming to do is really engage the victims and their families um, from admission through discharge, coordinating with that, that multidisciplinary team, initially focusing on once the patient is stable, really trying to address the issues that are connected to acute stressors and secondary traumatic stress for the survivors and their family. And so what we're immediately trying to do is assess for immediate re-injury risk. We're also at the same time collaborating with public safety to make sure that we are using a patient-centered, uh, trauma-responsive approach um, to, make, to make sure that we are de-escalating, making sure that our survivors understand that they're having a normal response to an abnormal situation. Yeah. And so part of, the, part of that is really making sure that we are uh, using psychoeducation to educate them about the acute stressors that are related to that, which include, you know, a feeling of, of, of hypervigilance, a feeling of helplessness, horror, anxiety, hyperarousal. So building that up and then also helping normalize those experiences, making sure that they understand that they are not at fault. Um, that this this injury is just like the wound itself, and that we want to make sure that we understand that we're creating an ecosystem towards their recovery. And so through crisis intervention, where we really focus on then is that it's patient-driven. So we want to understand through case management, what are their immediate goals? And primarily what we like to do is focus on their highest level needs. Often it's around food, housing, it's around mm -hmm. jobs. Um, so we, we really try to make sure that they drive their plan towards recovery and that what we try to do is take advantage of the internal resources that we have at the University of Chicago, which include Healing Curve People Chicago, our recovery and empowerment after community trauma clinic, REACT clinic, but also our community partners, which include Branch Family Institute, mm -hmm. um, Advocate Christ Medical Center has a trauma recovery program. It's outpatient based. So we have that web of support with them and we stay connected with them through that process. But it's driven by the survivors of violence and it's also driven by the families of victims. That's a lot, a lot of important work. Before this trauma center and, and, and violence recovery program, what did it look like? To, 
yeah, for instance, so, you know, maybe let's, getting let's treated for a gunshot about, wound. Yeah, I mean, immediately we could talk about proximity. We could think again about the community activism and the, and the uproar and outrage around the fact that there was a, a level one trauma center that right. was near these historic communities that have contributed, uh, you know, so much to Chicago and to the nation and to the world as a whole. And so with that being said, proximity was the issue. And so now the trauma center is able, just like the with with the West Woodlawn incident that happened, unfortunately, that now that's within a mile distance um, to address the recovery of the victims and the survivors of violence. The other thing that I want to highlight is that as an institution as a whole, you know, I'm a South Sider that grew up in the Park Manor community, mm-hmm. and the importance of having staff, we have a multidisciplinary team of individuals, some that have street outreach backgrounds, some that are social workers, but across the board, they all possess the cultural capital because they understand the constraints that are connected to these structural mechanisms that Kim and Tenney brought up, but they also understand the lived experience of interpersonal trauma. And so what that means is that some of the first people that they interact with understand and they have this currency where they can speak to them and they can build trust with them to connect to those resources. Mm-hmm. The other part of that that I want to highlight is that that process of, of building some credibility for survivors of violence, it's not limited to us. It's with our extended relationships with street outreach organizations, with community-based organizations that have, as, as Tenny mentioned, they're proximate to the incident that's going on. They right. understand where patients might be discharged back into, and we communicate. That has been a process that we have been developing over the past four years, and we're, we, we have some hope in terms of the direction that we're going. You know, when we think about where violence in this city is concentrated and, and why, I wonder what your response is to folks who write off the South Side because of violent yeah. crime. Thank you. Yeah, and, and, you know, it really goes back to, for, for me, the structural mechanisms that have been tied the policies and practices directly connected to race and racism. And it, it goes back over 102 years, if you look at how violence was used to constrain black bodies through the 1919 Chicago race riots, and then the different housing mechanisms that happen and continue to, to play out um, over the next 100 years, whether it's redlining, whether it's restricted covenants, and then also um, predatory housing contracts what has contributed to a wealth gap between black and white Chicagoans um, that exists between three and four billion dollars. And so we, although it's important where our where we're focusing on this collaboration, and I'm inspired by the collaboration and coordination that we have with community-based organizations, especially with our street outreach community intervention groups. Um, we need to be mindful that the mechanisms that help shape why communities look the way they do have existed in the Chicago context for over 100 years. Mm. What advice do you have for folks with friends and relatives who are recovering from these traumatic injuries? How can they support yeah, them? Yes, yeah, so no, you know, for certain, like one thing is, is, is empathy and also normalizing their reaction and uproar um, regarding the victimization of their loved ones. And so with that being said, it's very important to connect the survivors or families of victims to local experts in the community, uplifting the, the individuals in the community or organizations that have those relationships and those relationships matter. It doesn't matter if you have the resources to connect individuals. If you don't have the relationships, they're not going to trust you because of the mechanisms that I've described that have existed for decades. And so 
it's being very mindful about the mental health impact of that. Education is very important around understanding those signs of acute stressors, understanding that connection to post-traumatic stress, and building that network, working with community leaders and organizations that have those relationships Mm -hmm. to bridge those resources to them. But one thing I want to highlight is that this didn't happen overnight, and the solutions are not going to happen overnight. Franklin Kozigay is the director of the Violence Recovery Program at University of Chicago Medicine's Adult Trauma Center. Franklin, thank you so much. Thank you. Want more context on the top issues of the day? Find the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.